You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Compliance Conversations. I'm CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and today's guest is Brian Burton, who is the Chief Compliance and Privacy Officer for Healthicity. Welcome, Brian. Good morning, CJ. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm fantastic, sir. Looking forward to today's conversation. This is uh, an interesting topic. Love to share with our audience. Yes, we're, we're going to talk a little bit of HIPAA. It'll be a HIPAA chat. Brian has so much experience in HIPAA, security, privacy. I know just enough to be dangerous, to ask the dangerous questions. I, I, I'm a pretty good issue spotter. I don't know if I would say I have chapter and verse at my fingertips all the time. How do you feel about it, Brian? <laughs> I don't know that I have chapter and verse. Um, I've had some opportunities to look into some potential issues with HIPAA in the past, but still rely on the experts and the regulation itself. I find myself going to um, the law uh, regularly to refer and make sure that I'm understanding and interpreting and applying appropriately. Exactly. I have to do that just to double check myself. I think, you know, a lot of people in compliance are a little bit compulsive that way. <laughs> I mean, that's probably what makes us go into compliance and what can make us succeed in compliance is we double and triple check ourselves sometimes. We don't want to be wrong. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I keep 45 CFR subpart C, D, and E up all the time. (laughs) Exactly. Got it on speed dial. Well, so today we thought we'd talk about HIPAA and mental health and HIPAA and uh, like substance abuse. And because I think a lot of us understand the simple, straightforward HIPAA stuff, right? Um, And when you get into mental health, it seems like there are some nuances. You sometimes, and this could happen with any patient, but sometimes patients might be at risk of harming themselves or others, and that happens more in mental health. And so, you know, what are you allowed to do, those sorts of things. Uh, But let's first start off with kind of a a topic that I always wondered about when I was starting in psychiatry. So a lot of you know, I'm an MD by schooling. I started my training in psychiatry before I left clinical practice uh, to do, you know, compliance full-time. And one of the things that always came up was when you're doing group therapy. So you're, here you are, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist, and you've got, you know, 10 people in group, and they all have slightly different problems. You know, the group therapy is meant to, you know, it's therapeutic as, as far as like self-awareness and, and helping people, you know, come to acceptance in some cases and change behaviors in others. So some of those skills are shared, and that's why you do group therapy. But a lot of people have asked, well, are you allowed to talk about you know, the patient's issues and this and that. The, you know, the short answer, and, and OCR has a, a FAQ on this, is yes, you can. Um, of course, as a therapist, you're going to, you know, you're not going to spill all the dirty laundry. But by the fact that the fact that the patient is consenting to group therapy, there's a lot of leeway there in sharing, you know, with the group, the group can talk freely and openly. And I think that's really important, especially for group therapy. And, and HIPAA should not really be a concern. Brian, do you have thoughts or have, have you gotten questions or had issues with, with that type of scenario in the past? 
Well, I haven't specific addressed issues there, not in a practical sense, but I, I did have a question for you. When we're talking about that consent, um, do you think mental health providers traditionally have that one-on-one session with the individual, explain the nature of the group, um, the group setting? And do you do, do mental health providers obtain separate consent for the group health? Absolutely. Good question. So um, it's pretty rare, and I'm not going to say never, but it's pretty rare that you would do group therapy as your first thing, right? You're, you're spot on where you're first you're trying to develop a therapeutic relationship with the patient and first of all you have to do you know like a diagnostic exam you have to figure out what are the issues with the patient first and foremost um so you're right you and when you introduce group therapy you go through what you just said you you explain to the patient look group therapy is designed and this kind of therapy is designed you know for cognitive therapy. This one is behavioral. This one is supportive. And so you kind of explain what that group therapy is, what it's going to entail. And though I'm not aware of like a separate HIPAA release that the patient would sign, it's, I think it's a good practice. And I know therapists that do that, you know, when the patient is first coming to you, you can have kind of a a consent form that says, look, we're going to be talking about these sorts of things. Uh, We're going to get to another topic here about psychotherapy notes. Um, Mm -hmm. and patients don't always have access to that, you know, as they might have access to their EKG and their chest X-ray and all these other things that they're used to getting at their fingertips. So it makes sense to have some sort of explanatory document that says, look, mental health treatment is a little bit different. These are going to be your, your rights. These are the things that you might not have access to. We may do group therapy. And when we do group therapy, we may discuss sensitive issues. So yes, I think you're spot on. And putting it in writing is always helpful, right? I think they do it verbally for sure. I've, I've seen that as a practice, but always putting it in writing, you can always, that kind of helps prevent claims of, oh, you never told me we were going to do this before. Well, I, I was thinking that I would imagine, and, and again, mental health uh, practices aren't necessarily a, a strength of mine. I haven't had a ton of experience in that, that arena of healthcare, but I would imagine that as we're issuing the notices of privacy practice to those patients, yep. the mental health provider would have that explicit uh, declaration within yep. the notices of privacy practice to talk about what, what, what are the conditions of mental health right. uh, in group mental health scenarios, and then helping the patient understand that relationship in that group health mental health setting is is their responsibility to when they're communicating that everybody keeps those those conversations confidential right once that information comes from the patient to another individual who is not a provider it's not that information is no longer protected by hipaa correct right right so covered entities are bound by hipaa right patients are not covered entities and somebody who hears something secondhand is not a covered entity, right? So they might not be bound by HIPAA. Now they may be bound by, you know, good ethics and common sense and (laughs) those sorts of things. So you'd hope that they wouldn't share. Uh, But I'm so glad you brought up the NPP, the Notice of Privacy Practices. How often do we just think that that's something that we check off of our compliance list when it's supposed to be unique to your setting, right? You're supposed to say, because what's the title of it? It's a notice of our privacy practices. So for a mental health provider, let's say you're a mental health hospital or a mental health outpatient, you know, intensive care outpatient type of service, or you're a psychiatrist or psychologist, 
I would hope that in your notice of privacy practices, you would address some of the unique things that happen in mental health, as opposed to, you know, if you're a cardiologist, you might not have need to talk about group therapy as much, right? Exactly. And I think it's also important to note that as all covered entities, uh, we should be reviewing our notices of privacy practices on, on a routine and frequent basis, right? Because yeah. our, what services we offer sometimes change. You know, as we go through the year, we expand or contract the services we offer the patient population. It's always a good practice to go back and thoroughly read and understand uh, how your particular NPP is applying to your patient population. Exactly. Spot on. And so that's kind of, that was one that I kind of wanted to just touch on because I think it's a unique um, situation to the mental health space, right? Is group therapy. There's, I'm trying to think of other situations where, you you know, you might be exposed to kind of a group setting in healthcare, you know, like physical therapy and, uh, you know, you're all kind of in one room maybe where they do physical therapy. So, you know, other people are there or maybe you're in cardiac rehab and everyone's kind of in the same room, but you're not really sitting around talking about your issues. One person's on this piece of equipment, one person's on that piece of equipment. So you don't really know what they have as far as uh, an issue. Um, You know, chemotherapy is another good example where, you know, you're if you're seen by an oncologist you're, and you get chemotherapy two or three times a week, you're all sitting in the same kind of infusion room, right? Or So you, you kind of know why people are there and what they're getting, but you're not talking about your issues unless you volunteer it. And, and, and a, a, a healthcare professional is not engaging us to talk about it. Correct. And if I could, not to switch subjects on you, but circle back to something you mentioned earlier with the patient's right to access and psychotherapy notes. I think sometimes it's really clear, it'd be really helpful for mental health providers to include that specific language in your notices of privacy practice, helping creating that dialogue with the patient, helping them understand what, what they can access and what we can provide as a covered entity and what we can't. Exactly. And so let's talk about that a little bit, Brian, because I think a lot of people who are in HIPAA and privacy for a profession probably are aware of it, but we may have a lot of listeners who, you know, are are generalists in compliance and might not know all the details, but psychotherapy notes are explicitly excluded as, um, you know, something from, and, and most organizations when they, when they designate their medical record set or their data set, right? They'll say psychotherapy notes are not a part of it. But HIPAA specifically says psychotherapy notes that are kept separate from the medical record are not something that's required for the mental health provider to to provide if a patient comes and says, I want to see my whole medical record. Part of the reasons for that are when you're doing psychotherapy, people can be um, psychologically fragile and Mm -hmm. You know, you as a therapist are making notes and planning for your next therapy session. And if the patient, it, it, it's not this way, but it can seem this way to a patient who's having like a mental crisis that you're manipulating them or, and you're not really manipulating their feelings, but you're, you're trying to help them come to some conclusions that you see clearly and they haven't come to see that yet, right? And so that can be damaging to that therapeutic relationship. Sometimes it can be painful. It can, it can disrupt the, the relationship and people can even uh, harm themselves if in some extreme cases where, um, you know, they're alerted to what the therapist thinks about a patient and those sorts of things. So it's really there to protect patients. Hey, Absolutely. What, what's, your exper- 
Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in those scenarios where, where patients are seeking that help from their, from their mental health provider, um, those, those psychotherapy notes can be instrumental to providing the care. But they, to your point, the patient may not understand or interpret the, you know, the, the notes correctly. And that's why I think there's that carve out, right? Just to your right. point, um, to, it's there to protect the patient, not to hide anything from them, but to protect them. Um, exactly. And to be perfectly honest, I think I can only imagine or recall, excuse me, a, a few scenarios where individuals have, you know, ex- exercised their right to uh, access their patient information and then had that specific question about, well, why is this part missing or redacted? Exactly. Um, and <clears throat> what, what really becomes beneficial to the covered entity, in my experience, is not redacting the information, but thereby your HIM department or your health information management um, team develop those releases of information in a way that the patient gets everything they're, they're required to have, yep. but that you're not, um, you're not creating this, this uh, confusion by redacting certain components. You just remove or, or limit that function. And I know a lot of EMRs today have the psychotherapy note designation so that it can be carved out completely when that, when that medical record is printed or transmitted somewhere else. Yeah. And a lot of therapists, their psychotherapy notes may be handwritten and they might not even be in, you know, this designated EMR. Now, of course, you want to follow your institution's policies and procedures and and, and other mm-hmm. laws if it requires you to do that. But I'm aware of some scenarios where these psychotherapy notes are, um, sure, they're kept secure and protected, but they might physically be separate from, separate from the EMR. Yeah. yeah from something. Yeah. So, and, you know, anyway, it's kind of an interesting, it's just an interesting, an interesting space. And I think you need to be aware, our listeners need to be aware that those type of exceptions for uh, psychotherapy notes do exist. Um, sure. it, it, it kind of brings me to kind of my next question or topic, which is, is that even true when it's a minor, right? So you would think, okay, I'm a mother, I'm a father, my child is 10, 11, 12, 16, whatever. Um, those ages will matter. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But, uh, you know, as their, as their um, guardian or as their parent, can't I have access to the psychotherapy notes? And the same question or the same answer, it's not necessarily no. right. So HIPAA no. allows for the psychotherapist and those notes to be withheld even from the parent. Um, yeah, based which, on the provider's discretion, correct? I mean, but yes. you know, d- determining if the mental health provider concludes that this function or portion of the record should remain confidential correct from both parent and patient yeah and that's a good point it doesn't HIPAA, i don't think hipaa says you mustn't release psychotherapy notes it says you can withhold psychotherapy notes right so there's that discretion where um the therapist could do that if, if they felt like it would be would be beneficial um if but we get a lot of Go ahead. Oh, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I apologize. Um, really, I think it, it goes to the, the provider's discretion, correct? You know, there, are, there yes. could be portions of, of the psychotherapy notes that would be beneficial for the parent, but it's really the mental health provider's, you know, clinical decision making that yes. helps make that determination. And because, I mean, ultimately, we're all here to help serve our patient population and help them get better no matter their ailment mental health or otherwise. And, but if, so if there are portions of it that are beneficial, then, then the mental health provider should feel 
not obligated, but allowed to share certain components if it benefits the patient. Exactly. And, and quite frankly, a lot of psychotherapy notes are notes to the provider, to, to the professional to say, okay, this is where we are in this stage of therapy. You know, we left off with him exploring, the patient exploring this aspect of the problem or something. So um, a lot of those are notes to the, to the therapist so that, you know, they're working with multiple different patients throughout the day and they're all at different stages and phases of, of success in the therapy. And so a lot of it is notes to the therapist of, okay, this is where we pick up. Um, you know, this is where we are in this, in this process. So. so, Brian, the one other thing I just wanted to kind of uh, touch on as we um, talk about like an, a parent or a guardian and, and teenagers and minors is um, specific to mental illness. I found, and I'll include this in the links to the show notes, uh, an interesting kind of help or aid document. It's about four pages from OCR. It's titled, When Your Child, Teenager, or Adult Son or Daughter Has a Mental Illness or Substance Use Disorder, Including Opioid Addiction, What Parents Need to Know About HIPAA. And basically, it goes through and it talks about, you know, as, as a parent, they say, in most cases, you are your minor child's personal representative, and you can exercise all of your child's HIPAA rights. So in most cases, that's, that is true. Excuse me. They do say, though, there are some exceptions that could prevent you from being your child's personal representative. The first one has to do with your child is, and this has to do kind of with state laws, and that's why it's important that we keep it straight in our minds what HIPAA is covering and what state law covers. But your child may have independently consented to a healthcare service, and if that's true, and no other consent is consent is required by law. OCR says your child has not, and your child has not requested that you be treated as his or her personal representative. So when, when children start to become of certain ages, and this can vary by state, you, you might reach an age where they're not, you know, 18 or 21, uh, they may be 16 or 17, and they can actually consent to certain forms of, of uh, mental health treatment. And in those cases, unless the child says, yes, I also you know, consent to my parent being my personal representative, those scenarios might be some in which the parent or guardian does not um, qualify as a personal representative. I don't know if you've dealt with that. And that may even be true in some other healthcare situations, not just mental health. Yeah, correct. And I, I don't recall having addressed this on a mental health scenario, but certainly have um, and when you have teenage pregnancies or potential for, for sexually transmitted diseases, yep. and there's certain state laws and those vary. Uh, I, yep. th- I love this article. Um, I think it's fantastic. It'd be great. If I were a mental health provider dealing with these types of things on a routine basis, I would have printed copies of this at, exactly. at my disposal <laughs> to give to the parents and the child, right? Yeah, because exactly. You know, I think it's just as important to educate the the, the decision maker, the patient who's of age um, yes. in this scenario. It's just as important to educate them as it is their parent. And, and this is a great resource um, and highly recommend that we, we can include this direct PDF in the show in the notes. Um, it, but this is fantastic. And it, it's very clear. It's not too long. Because um, HIPAA can be super boring, but this, exactly. <laughs> this OCR has put together a really good document here to help individuals, both parent and patient, understand their rights. I completely agree. And there's a few others that we might not have time to discuss, but we'll include the links because they're all short little PDFs. And what I was thinking, you know, with my compliance 
hat on and my my trainer hat on is these would make great little in services right so if you're if you're in a practice or a type of hospital that deals with mental health issues maybe take one of these a month you know and over the course of six months you you just talk about them um they can be five minute, 10 minute discussions, but they're little reminders. And then they're in your, like you said, you print them off their aids to, to help you and, and patients. They're, they're great tools. They're not. And like you said, they're not regulatorily, they're not written with a regulatory tone. So they're, they're much more user-friendly in my opinion. Yeah. agree. And I love your idea about education world, you know, and as, and whether you're a mental health provider joining us today or you're a HIPAA professional joining us today, these are great opportunities. CJ, CJ highlights the, the importance of that continuing uh, and frequent education. These are perfect examples of things that you could issue in a, in a standing meeting with your management team. Share this, share this content with your, with your staff, not just your providers, but also the the yes. nurses and other clinicians that may be available um, because they can help you be that watch guard for, are we following the, the regulation in the way that we're supposed to? Yes. Spot on. So a couple other topics that just to kind of uh, throw out there that we'll use to kind of come to a, a slow conclusion here. Two things. Uh, what about mental health professionals and preventing harm? And then we'll segue that into kind of, uh, a major concern today, which is opioid abuse. And also that kind of falls into substance abuse in general. So maybe we could just kind of talk a little bit about in general health professionals and their ability to prevent harm. HIPAA allows, and this is another one of those PDFs, so we'll, we'll include the link, but HIPAA allows mental health professionals to prevent harm. So if a patient is at risk of harming themselves or someone else, HIPAA does not restrict you and bind your bind you you know and and tie your arms behind your back from reaching out to maybe public health officials public safety officers police that sort of thing even family members Mm -hmm. right family is often the support system for people so if there's a child or even an adult who has is at risk for hurting themselves the mental health professional can reach out to family and say you know they might not give you everything in the medical record, but they can reach out and say, look, I'm concerned about so-and-so. Will you please not leave them alone? Will you please make sure someone's watching them 24 hours a day? You know, so you don't have to say what all the issues are, but you can, you can give warnings, right? I think that's a great point, CJ. And even if you're a compliance and privacy professional, you're familiar with the phrase minimum necessary. And that phrase applies here. And we know minimum necessary is a legal definition within HIPAA, but it applies, right? In this scenario, when we're sharing information to prevent harm to the patient or others, uh, keep in mind as we're sharing that information with the individuals, we only want to give them the minimum necessary information to protect the individual or others. Right. You don't have to say, oh, hey, uh, brother of patient X. Uh, He's on this amount of this drug and this amount of this drug, and he's done this bad thing and that bad thing. No, he can just say, look, I'm concerned about your brother. Um, You know, and I I just would like somebody to support him and make sure he gets to these appointments and yada, yada, yada. So that type of thing is what you said, minimum necessary. Exactly. And what I love about the PDF that OCR published, the very last sentence or second to last sentence, they say, OCR would not second guess a health professional's judgment about when a patient seriously and imminently threatens their own or others' health or safety. So 
I mean, I think that statement should give us all some confidence, right? That OCR is not going to come after us for, you know, for reaching out to a family member or a support system and say so-and-so needs help, it, especially if they're at imminent threat for them, of themselves or others. Exactly. And I, I don't think there's a single case where a qualified medical professional in their clinical judgment determined it was appropriate to contact a family member or law enforcement or another public health entity um, to share certain information that provided that to your earlier point, we're not going into the great detail of talking about, you know, which types of narcotics that might have been misused or, or anything yeah. like that, but really trying to seek help for the individual. Um, I don't think there's ever going to be a scenario where the OCR or any enforcement agency is going to pursue you know, good faith attempt to protect the individual or others. Yeah. And that kind of leads us into, and you, you mentioned a little bit of, of substance abuse, HIPAA as it relates to substance abuse. And it basically is the same there. And there's some special aids as well. These PDFs that we'll give you links to that OCR specifically addresses HIPAA and opioid uh, crisis. And they talk about things like what we've just talked about in mental health in general, if, if the patient's at risk of harming themselves or others. But you also have to remember that sometimes people with substance abuse may become mentally incapacitated and they can't give their consent for contacting a family member. But what OCR outlines here is, let's say a patient is, has OD'd or something and they're in an emergency room and the patient's non-responsive, um, but the facility has a contact information for a family member in the record. They give scenarios and examples where it would be appropriate to reach out to those family members because the patient is not in a state to say, no, don't reach out to them, right? And unless the patient has declared previously, don't reach out to them. So they give kind of those scenarios where it's okay to, to again, reach out to prevent harm or to inform like a support system that so-and-so is, is struggling in this scenario. Yeah, I, I think that's a great scenario, too. And the other one that I was thinking about, I wanted to seek your opinion on is in the scenario where we have a patient who's who's managing pain through an opioid prescription, they're not necessarily using an, an illegal substance, but it's prescribed. Right. So, you know, would it be appropriate for that mental health provider or other provider to uh, to alert a family member if they start to notice abuse or signs of abuse of those prescription opioids? Yeah, again, I think it's going to be fact specific, but I think in what I've read, there are there is that allowance and that leeway for professional judgment. A good example is, um, so I don't know if you know in, in your state, but in the, I live in Utah right now, and there is a lot of problems in this area. And what the public is doing, what public health programs are doing is they're giving um, the anecdote, you know, this Narcan that you can take, which is an, uh, you know, antidote to uh, uh, opioid overdose. They give free vials out at the library if you request them. So, because oh, wow. it, it, it's not a drug, you know, unless somebody has an allergic, re a known allergic reaction to it, it's very low risk type of drug, but they give out these little vials with little needles and instructions to people, no questions asked, right? So to try to remove the stigma and there's posters all over the place that say, you know, if, if you um, use opioids therapeutically or whatever, they try to, you know, not say you're abusing it, but, you know, tell your 
spouse, tell your significant other, tell your brother, tell your sister that you're taking those drugs and that this little packet here, if they ever find you lying on the floor unconscious to give you this, <laughs> right? So they're trying to address the issue because people are dying and there's a simple um, saving remedy here. Well, and I think, it, you know, to your point, I think most, most people who've been afflicted by the opioid epidemic or crisis, um, you know, certainly we have criminals in the, in the United States, but most people who are in that, epi that opioid crisis, they started off with an ailment. Yes. Um, and they started off with a legitimate prescription to help manage their pain. And as time goes on, and, and, and this varies, the science varies from human to human, uh, but they, their tolerance levels or the way their, bo their body chemistry responds to the opioid, sometimes they need to take more in order to alleviate that pain. And what happens right. is they, they start to build that chemical dependency. And it's not the individual's fault. Right. They they had a, a, a an injury or ailment of some sort. They started off with a legitimate prescription. And now that individual is, is struggling to manage one, their pain and what has developed into a dependency um, and seeking help for those. We should never put a negative stigmatism on that. Right. Um, and and what I what I really enjoy about the OCR and this information is they're encouraging us as professionals, HIPAA professionals and providers to, to share the information that we need to in order to solicit help for those people. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that might be a scenario where if I'm a provider and OCR gives this example, they say, if a patient comes into to see you for substance abuse and they invite their their parent or brother in with them. So they're in the session where you're discussing it. They're, they've already identified that individual by the mere fact of letting them coming into treatment with them um, mm -hmm. as somebody who's a part of the support system. And so OCR yeah. talks about that as an example of someone you might be able to reach out to because the, the patient themselves, and unless they then change their mind later and say, never contact this person about X, Y, and Z, which people rarely do, but it might happen. But generally, the flow is going to be, oh, that person's here to support you. That might be somebody I can contact. It might be somebody like this, this antidote that I was talking about. It might be somebody I say, hey, just keep one of these in your car or in your house. Um, go to your public we, library, pick one up. And that's a great point, too. I mean, circling back to, you know, by nature of the patient allowing a family member to participate in the, in the discussion with the provider, I think right. it's also important that the provider identify that individual and document that the name and relationship yes. in the medical record so that the in the the provider's judgment we're documenting who participated in the conversation and it becomes readily available as part of the medical record and that, yeah. that becomes is there's verbal consent too right um, yes. you don't always have to obtain the 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 written consent from the patient and it's just as important to document those things uh, as it beyond the notices of privacy practice and the and our normal in our, our our new patient paperwork that we issue, but documenting who's involved in the patient's care. Yes, that and that's just something that we even learned, you know, in medical school when twenty years ago, more than that now, when we were taught about getting an appropriate social history, a part of an appropriate social history. And there's been so many studies. This is not even uh, an argument anymore. People who have good support systems do better clinically. 
they're more compliant with their meds. They have better support. They get to appointments and treatments. And so documenting, just like you said, and this is even outside of mental health and substance abuse, you know, somebody who's a diabetic or somebody who's got uh, cardiac rehab that they have to go to documenting that spouse, you know, Ethel was there and she's a good support and she's willing to, to help, you know, Mr. So-and-so get to his appointments. That's such a, a great point. And it's just good medical care to document social history that way. Excellent. Well, yeah. CJ, this has been so much fun. I, I, I know my time sometimes it, it appears to be limited and we don't yeah. get to do this as often as I like. I hope that in 2022 this year that you and I find more time to get together like this and share our thoughts and ideas with our audience. Agreed. This has been great, Brian. Thanks for your perspective and expertise. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode. Um, we will include these links in the show notes. Uh, take a look at them. I think they're a really valuable tool um, and you don't have to recreate the wheel. OCR has done a lot of the work. So anyway, thanks. And we'll and, uh, one final thought. Please, CJ, Brian. If, if any of our audience has any questions or would like to contact myself or CJ, please reach out to us on our website, uh, contact, select the contact us button. Um, and we'll be happy to make a connection and help you in any way we can. Absolutely. And you know, on the health history resources page. So if you go to healthhistory.com and then click on the resources page, there's so many great resources and there's blogs and you can have, we can have conversations online. Um, you know, if things aren't too sensitive, then others can benefit from those conversations as well. So, so look there, we, we try to respond to questions there as well. Thanks for pointing that out, Brian. And thanks everybody for, for listening to another episode until next time. Be safe. Compliance conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.